This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with leadership and performance coach Charlie Ruiz. He discusses his journey within baseball, going from a hardly recruited high school athlete to being selected in the MLB draft, his transition away from the sport due to injury, and the lessons he's learned which allows him to support high performance teams. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Right, Charlie, I know we've just caught up briefly there. We caught up last week. I'm excited for this one, but how are things uh, in the sunny side of America? All good? They're they're good. Not as sunny as you like, you know, in California, but they're here. We're all right. <laughs> I mean, compared to England, it's probably still a, still a good day. But to be fair, it's not too bad out here at the minute, just not as hot as I imagine it is there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess the first starting point for me, and obviously Lauren put us in contact, um, which appreciates and shouts out to her regarding this one, because I think uh, a really good connection to have. Uh, but for people that don't know you, don't know your background, do you just want to, I guess, explain a whistle-stop tour of who you are and what you currently do? Sure, yeah, I'll give you the whistle-stop. So I'm located in San Francisco Bay Area, uh, and part of my professional career, I, I like to say, is unconventional. I right? lived on a baseball field for you know, 20, 25 years of my life and was fortunate to play professional baseball for a few years uh, with the Colorado Rockies. And then after surgery from throwing baseballs, right, you have to pivot and transition. So it's been about eight, nine years uh, since since that transition to the point where now I've had a series of whether sales and marketing jobs in Silicon Valley, working in technology, to then finding what I truly have found is my kind of next big Next big thing and next big passion or dream, as you would say, and that's to be able to work with people uh, in performance, leadership development, one on one and group setting. So uh, I branched off and had a year year of figuring out that and have landed with and now own my own performance and leadership development company or leadership coaching company. Perfect. So I think, yeah, there's loads of bits that we'll go into in terms of your journey, because I know it is an interesting one. I think the bas- uh, the baseball, sorry, is probably a really good start to point, uh, point to start, should I say. So yeah. on that front, do you just want to go in? How did you get into baseball in the first place? What did that look like for you? Why was that your sport of love? And yeah, how did you get into it? Probably my parents. Right. Uh, I think parents and also friends growing up. But I mean, when you date back to when you're five, six years old playing T-ball, right, you just kind of go into uh, the the game and then you meet friends and you find yourself at the baseball field. And then after years in adolescence and childhood, you realize that you're having fun out there. And that then soon transforms into, oh, wait a second, I'm actually pretty good at this sport. I don't really know how good I am. Uh, And then and then the competitor kicks in, I'd say probably around 12 right? Nine, 10, 11, 12. And you're like, okay, this is, this is a lot of fun, but it's also about the competition, not just the sport and my friends. Uh, and then that just transformed into what then become, you know, a living a childhood dream and signing a professional contract eventually. Perfect. So I think one of the, one of the routes that's obviously common within Europe, US sport and slightly different out here is that kind of collegiate route, etc. And how you know people go from high school to collegiate and then collegiate onto pro ranks in, in some some capacity. Can you just uh, describe to us what that journey was like for you? And I guess, yeah, what the stops looked like for you across that journey? 
Yeah. So what was the journey for me? Not, not one of the ones that you would think of when it comes to <laughs> signing a professional contract. Uh, I played all the sports. You know, I think basketball was the first love. Uh, and then baseball just happened to be good at. Uh, and then from there, I was pretty good growing up. However, I wasn't, you know, a, a, a recruited. I wasn't recruited. I wasn't that top, the top dog, if you will. So through high school, I only played two years. I was hurt because I was playing a couple sports. And I had one good year in my senior year of high school. And in the U.S., right, it's like that the senior year is when you could potentially get a scholarship or the junior year. I didn't play. So I went to a junior college. I went to a local junior college here about 10, 15 minutes away, which was known for good baseball players. So I go there and I still wasn't really a top dog. I was trying to find a way to get on the field, to like work hard enough to put in the hours to figure out how I can contribute to this team in some way. And I had a wonderful coaching staff, dived into sports psychology on multiple levels. They were amazing to me and they provided resources where I was able to take advantage of them and, and learn and then land a scholarship to go play at the, at the D1 level. So two years of junior college and then one year at Long Beach State down in Southern California, which was a dream baseball school, school of mine. After that, right, D1, as a junior, you can sign a professional contract. I'm there, again, had a, had, a, had a wonderful year with my teammates. And that's when the confidence, I think, really took another step because I realized that I was competing at the highest level in collegiate, in the collegiate world. And I was like, okay, it's time. I think I can do this. Not only can I think, but I know. And was fortunate to sign that year, 2009, 10th round, and have my first, my first true experience of saying, hey, you are a professional baseball player. You just signed your contract. And it was something I truly never dreamed of. And it happened. And it happened. Perfect. I think one thing I want to pick up on there, as you mentioned, uh, particularly in that uh, junior college space, how amazing the coaching staff were. Yeah. Um, and I think for anyone that's watched Last Chance U, for which yeah. there will be common over UK, you can probably see conflicting sides of that of some coaching staff of that I'd say I'd love to be coached by them and others I'd probably say I probably wouldn't like to be coached by them for you what made your coaching staff so amazing what kind of when you reflect now what do you think was so prominent in that environment that allowed you to flourish the consistency in the message but also how uncomfortable that they made me feel the most important part, though, other than making me feel uncomfortable, was I knew that they had my back. So as much as they would push me mentally, uh, physically, there was still this, this notion that I did believe that they had my best interest and they had my back. And I think as a young ball player, 17, 18 years old, regardless of how hard <laughs> the coaches may be on you, there's the human side of it. It's like, do they have my back? And... I felt that they did and they still do. So as you're trying to figure it out, all the different lessons learned on that field and that brotherhood that they created, I think to this day, those two years being a, a Chabot gladiator is probably two of the most transformational or tra being a Chabot gladiator is two of the most transformational years in my baseball career, because I think I learned a lot about myself uh, in that time. And you, you obviously now do a lot of work, you know, with high performing groups or high performing teams or looking at trying to encourage that. What 
do you think that they were able to manifest within the group? And you said, obviously, it's transformational for you as a character and it encouraged self-awareness. Was there any particular strategies they used or any particular uh, things they targeted that you look back now and go, actually, that was really clever because that bonded us as a group or challenged me as an individual? Um, yeah, could you talk us through any of those? Yeah, so like, what were some of the tactics or the strategy behind how they were able to kind of motivate the team or me, me specifically? Yeah, yeah, across the board. I think they adapted to where I was at, right? So they met me where where I was at mentally and physically, but they pushed me to have more belief and conviction in and how good I my my potential was. Right? So here you have this young or this young person who's trying to figure himself out by maybe testing me and pushing me, putting me out there in opportunities or, or in games in which I had no business being in or high pressure moments that I may have not been quote unquote ready for and getting me uncomfortable as much as they could have in practice, right? Kind of talking, right? Chirping at me, saying little things that they knew would unra unravel this, uh, in a way, introverted kid who was just trying to find his way. I think they brought out this, this conviction and this belief in me even more than I had already kind of had internally. I had to outwardly show it. What way to do that than on the mound as a closer at the end of a ball game? They pushed me. Practice. Now thinking about it even more, how they approached me at practice compared to how they approached some of the other guys that were highly scouted, it was all intentional. They're like, let's, let's make Charlie mad. Let's see what happens. Let's get some of that fiery competitor out there. Let's get him out there. Let's see, let's see what we can do in practice. And it just became what I did in the game. And that's when it all started to click for me. And then for you, I guess, as an athlete, what was your, what was your skill set? So obviously for them to invest in you that heavily, they must have seen something in you and gone, actually, this guy, you know, is, is is high potential and can obviously have success for us, but could potentially go on and have success set elsewhere. What what would you say from an athletic point of view they were able to see or thought that they could utilize in your skill set? I think they thought I was adaptable. Right. I was I was long, long and lean. But I had I had the skill set, like I had the tools. My my arm was live enough from a baseball perspective, but right? I had a good arm. Uh, I was athletic. I was athletic enough, and I think they also probably saw my work. Right? I was definitely the 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 lead by example, and not by my voice type of guy. And I was never a fan of the person who was always like the cheerleader uh, person, even though that's kind of kind of what I do now. It was more of like watch me do the work. And I think that they may have saw that. They're like, hey, this, this kid's working really hard. He's got the right talent. He's got the physical pieces. We need to really, really get into his mind. And that, I think, was the most important thing that I had those two years was them unlocking the, the mindset that I then approached to really my life. Yeah, so then, I mean, I think that's an easy transfer, right? And so then when you go into D1 school, that's probably prepared you quite well. If you compare some athletes that will go from high school that might have been the big fish in that pond that have never been challenged or supported, whereas you're going in two years older, you might be 20, 21 at this point, you've been challenged and supporting different environments. How prepared do you think you were to go into that D1 space? And was there anything that 
either you you went into and went this is easier than I expected, or is there anything that you you know caught you short in terms of preparation, or what what did that transition for you look like from JUCO into D one? Gave me goosebumps. It was the best preparation I could have had. I think when I got there, not to say that it was easy because it wasn't. It's never easy. What was easy was the was was the work. I think it was. Let me back that up. What was the transition from JUCO to D1? I felt like I'd already been put through the ringer in so many different ways that when I got there, the work ethic and all of the intangibles, those stood out. I already knew I can handle anything. So even when the Division One, all these highly touted people, right, were, were there as freshmen, as sophomores, juniors, this is a big university. I just remember also the way that the practice was scheduled, but you couldn't practice for two or three months in the fall. You can only go out there for an hour or two. I just came from a school that we would be out there for six, eight hours in the rain, grinding, terrible jerseys, locker rooms that are awful. So I had none of the, the I had none of the stuff that I was walking into this great D1 that I was like, this is all cake for me. I love this. Like an hour or two of practice, let's go, let's do more. And I think because of my time in my junior college, because that's what I had invested in in two years of such hard work, that when I got there to the D1, I was I was prepared beyond from a mental standpoint, which is the most important standpoint. Physically, of course, these guys were amazing. But mentally, I felt like I had, I had been prepared uh, more so. And then... I get there and get introduced to the godfather of sports psychology, uh, Ken Revisa, uh, rest in peace. He he was the foundation for not only major league players, but he had been kind of working with Long Beach State here and there. And I got introduced to him. And all the lessons that I got from my junior college were just getting brought back up to the importance from, you know, the one. And I was like, okay, what's the differentiator, Charlie, for you? It's the mind. Yeah, I think that that humbleness of the beginnings is a really interesting one. So Man United over here, they have an old training ground called the Cliff. Um, so they've got their newer one called Carrington, which is where all of the first team train and some of the older ones. But at the younger age groups, they have the Cliff, which is they've kept quite basic. Um, yeah. And I think that, in my opinion, from the outside, I think it's intentional. I think it's to ground, you know, the kids and the parents at those younger age groups, because obviously the, the academy system out here starts quite young and they do it to kind of show, listen, yeah, you're a Manchester United academy player, but that doesn't come with glitz and glam and all of that. Actually, you have to earn that on the way through. So you are going to play on, you know, pitches that aren't going to be pristine all the time, or you're going to go to where, you know, it's a little bit boggy at points or, you know, the change rooms aren't perfect, but actually you've got to work your way through it. And I, I, that kind of resonates from what you've said there, which is actually if you're coming from JUCO, which you're making the best of what that situation is, where the grounds might not be the best, the kit might not be the best, the whatever might not be the best. And then you're going into D1, you're kind of going, well, actually... I've done really well with this basic stuff. Imagine if I tune in properly here with all the facilities I've got, how much further I can get. So I think that's a really interesting uh, 
yeah, just a thread around that of actually that humbleness to begin with. Does that give or could that potentially give athletes a bit of a fire in their belly so it isn't easy all the time because that's where people get complacent? Exactly. Find it. I talk about chase. I talk about it in some of the work that I do with executives now, but also back. Go chase it. Chase some of that adversity. I'm not saying we, we want to always welcome it. But, but if it's there, that's a good thing. Like, that's a good thing. So yes, embrace it. Look for it. That's going to then put you in a space in place to where you're just building a muscle of I've been here before I battled compared to the other. Now, again, I, if I got a D, D1 scholarship at a high school, yeah, probably, probably would have went <laughs> as, as many would. But again, I go back to that June, those junior college days. And that to me set me up for so much more uh, as, as, as a man and as an athlete that I cherish those two years. I truly do. And so when we're looking at obviously that, that year at the, the, the D1 school, yes. Um, obviously you will hear whisperings, you'll see scouts are starting to turn up to your game. So I guess, could you talk through one initially how you began to find out about those conversations and then two, as a as an athlete, how does that actually affect you? Does it affect you? What, um, you know, what conversations you have with coaches? What is that environment actually feel like in terms of having all of these professional scouts come into your games? And I saw a, a video the other day with I think it was thirty two scouts, and all of them had their little radar guns to check the velocity. And I can only imagine as a pitcher how crazy that must be to see them all have the speed gun there put it down right in notes so yeah could you just describe what that process was like and then what those feelings were, were like for you then it was it was so new to me that I didn't think much of it because I wasn't scouted that when I started to see it when it started to feel real I think was in the fall, so fall season, where you see a lot of scouts out there. Every scout that would be out there in my previous two years of junior college was there for somebody else. <laughs> Truly, there for somebody else. So then when I get to division one level, it was the same, right? You have a lot of guys who throw really hard. They're there for those guys. I never thought they were there for me. So for me, it was, I know what my job is. I got to go out there. <laughs> I got to throw strikes. If I hit some numbers on the radar gun, great. But now that you've asked me, I never really thought about them being there. I never asked numbers as to how hard I was doing because I knew my job was to get guys out and that's all I was there to do. It was really focused. I was really focused on the process of what I was doing. That's literally then, what I was about to say, process driven rather than outcome driven. So I'm controlling what I can control and the rest is external noise. That, that's it. But at the time, you know, 18, 19 year old kid, I don't know what I'm doing other than the fact that I'm just out here to get guys out and try to try to get a starting position or try to be the be the closer for this team that I'm trying to do whatever I can to add value. And then you have a couple of good fall outings. As you're trying to make, you know, get you get your roster spot and an agent will come and then you'll get an email or you'll get a letter from a scout that used to paper used to be paper here's your right here's your letter i'm like oh wait a second oh like that this is for me this has my name on it 
And then you have a couple agents approach you and then you have a conversation. And, I, and then that's when it all started to kind of hit in the fall. But then even once the season rolled around, I just went back to what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get guys out. Like I'm trying to focus on the process to help the team win games however I can. I'm already living a dream. So anything else after this is this is cake. And how did you keep your head into that? Because I'd imagine it'd be very easy, like the journey you're talking about there, is you've gone from not being recruited at high school, really, to being at a JUCO, to, you know, then obviously being recruited to D1, to then having scouts and agents get in contact with you. It could be really easy to go the other way of going, right, I'm making it now, and this is what I'm going to focus on because it's there. How did you keep your focus towards the process rather than, you know, getting caught up in all the glitz and glamour of what could be with, you know, the success you were having. My parents, give me emotional, Michael, thinking about my parents. Uh, I feel like they kept me grounded. My my parents, my family, my little brother, one who was looking up to me, uh, you know, we lived in the game. Um, you know, my godfather, uh, who, who was a big part of my life, like, they kept me grounded. I grew up in an apartment with an open door for everyone. It was it was always about kind of being around the people and the relationships that I was building, that all of the other external stuff, it was it was external, it was external motivation. It wasn't the most important thing for me. And I think that helped now that you asked me that question. Cause I was like, hey, like, Every day, no matter what, I'm going to go ahead and call my mom, call my dad, say what's up to my little brother, check in on my people. Uh, and, you know, the game's the game. I think that helps. Because, of course, you have your ups and downs. You get excited. You get a phone call. You're talking to a scout. You have the opportunity to go throw bullpen at Dodger Stadium. Of course, all that stuff was great. I was just playing a game that I love. <laughs> no, I think that makes complete sense. And I think... Yeah, what, what you said there probably resonates that grounding that people around you can help you have. And we spoke about this with Lauren in terms of, you know, if um if family or support networks go the the other way, that can be challenging for an athlete. But actually if they go the supportive way and keep you humble, that that's you know a really useful tool. Um again again, so looking at it then in terms of your your transition via the draft, you would have, I guess, begin to get a bit of a feel that actually this is going to be reality now. And that I don't know how many rounds there are in the draft. And there's quite a few, I know they've brought it down slightly, but there's a few, but at what point did you realize this was actually going to happen? And then what was that feeling like for you to be, you know, get the phone call to say, listen, we're going to draft you to the Rockies. Uh, this is what we want you to do and all that type of stuff. Yeah. At what point did it become real? Probably halfway through the season, because I realized that there was some attention. Uh, we we weren't we weren't we didn't have the best record, so I was still kind of focused on how can we win some ball games. And then when it became real, I think is when I was asked to, "Hey, you got a couple of organizations. Here's where, here's where they have you slotted, and they give you like a round, like hey, between five and ten, which was like." To me, again, dream. I was like, I never even in baseball, there used to be like 30 or 40 rounds. So like 40 rounds, I would have signed in the 40th. I would have signed for nothing. Right. So to hear those numbers, I think was a reality for me. It was a reality that it, this was potentially going to happen. And then it was just about, okay, how can I, 
stay healthy, stay grounded and try to enjoy the process a bit because it was something that was so new to me, but I had, it had to be at the end of the season. Uh, so that's what I did. And once the end of the season hit, I was like, oh, this is happening. And thankfully I had a great agent who was with me along the way with my family, sharing them because it was all new to us and just kind of embraced it all. It was, it was a really fun, fun and exciting time. And then hearing the transition over to getting the call, being again at my sister's house, all my dear friends, family, seeing back in the day, it, back in the day, 10 years ago, whatever it was, it was just on a computer, right? So they had round one and two on TV and then it was just a computer. So it was just like a scroll. And it was like, Colorado Rockies, pick 301, right? And then it was my name and elation, elation across uh, across the room and excitement that I never thought I would see, you know, happen. I could, I still remember what I was wearing. Still remember the hugs, the smiles, all of it. And the best part is I was surrounded by all the people that I love. And I still am. So then in terms of reality, what does that then actually look like? So obviously you get drafted, depending on where you get drafted, depends on where you're moving and how far you're moving from family and all of that type of stuff. So what does that reality actually look like for you at that point in terms of making that transition to um, obviously the minor league setup? Could you just talk us through that transition and then where ultimately you ended up playing during that period? Gotcha. Yeah. So where'd I end up going? I found out that I was being sent to Washington to go to the short season. So in college, season starts typically earlier, but once you finish D1, you go for like the summer. So they call it short season in one of the A-ball leagues. So they sent me there uh, to Washington. So I was like, Washington, baseball, it's raining there. And they're like, no, 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 you're going to Tri-Cities, Washington, which is dry and desert. So you pack your bags, you take all the stuff, that you have, which is, you know, not much. And you show up and coincidentally, I, I went there the first time after 12 years a month ago uh, to do some training for my current work. And I got to go back to that stadium and it was such a reflective West part of this conversation is so, so fun for me, such a reflective piece of the journey because it was the same. So here I am a 20 year old kid. I wasn't even 21 yet. I walk into the locker room. And it's short season. So you also have veterans there, guys who are hurt, guys who are rehabbing. First round guys, second round guys that are rehabbing because it's easier in the summer. I walk in, I look around the locker room and I'm like, oh, these these guys are huge. (laughs) These are some big men, right? (laughs) I'm looking at the locker room, kind of put the jersey on. Coach calls me in and he's like, all right, you're going to be our closer. I was like, yes, I am. Like, damn right, I'm be your closer. But then, of course, there's the other party that like goes and puts your stuff in the locker. You're like, do they know that I don't throw 98 miles an hour? Or And I know they know that. But it was like a moment of, all right, it's time. Be you. Show up. Be you. That's all you can do. You know what your job is. And I love that they told me that right when I got there because that just told me. You have landed. You are here. No, perfect. And I think that clarity, particularly for a you know a young kid, is important um, to be able to say to him, right, this is your role. This is 
and then you can fill out your expectations alongside that. So I think that's a really useful piece. Um, so what did that then look like in terms of moving forward over coming seasons? How long were you there for? What you know? Yeah, what what did that look like moving forward? Yeah. Um, so I mean, that season was it, right? It was okay. You're the closer. Have conviction. Go out there and do your thing. And once you, as a tenth as a tenth round pick, right? There is a little. You you were you were taken early enough to where it's like, all right, hey, we, we're expecting some some work out of you. We're expecting you to to climb to do your thing. And I had a again amazing coaching staff, still dear friend, dear friend, mentor, coach of mine. I was so fortunate. I get there, who's now the pitching coach for the Rockies, still great great mentor of mine. Shows up, we had the same kind of archetype. We were the same type type of pitcher. And I would just ask him, like, hey, do they still swing at these pitches that I throw? Split finger fastball. I don't throw 92 or 95. And I just remember him telling me, if you know where it's going, they'll, they'll swing at it. If you can control that pitch, that split finger, they will swing at it. And then he's like, and you know what I can bring for you, but you know it more than anything. So he was hands off with the right amount of care, but also was a mental framework guy. So it just worked out perfectly. He allowed me to be me out there. That whole season was amazing. I mean, I had one or two very bad outings to start and definitely contemplated, what am I doing? I can't believe I'm here. I remember the I remember the hotel. I remember the outing. Literally the first two outings, I think. I gave up a lot of runs and I was like, yep, I guess, I guess I'm not here. This isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Sat there and probably reflected all night, called my parents. And then after that, I don't think I don't think I gave up a run for like <laughs> the, the entire summer after that and didn't I think after the initial struggles, I went on a tear. And I didn't look at the stats. I had no idea what was going on. I just kept trying to win ball games. I kept trying to go out there and be a be a guy and help my teammate. And I was able to do that. I got a phone call in like June. My dad was like, hey, there's this watch that was sent here. What do you mean watch? It's like, there's a watch. It says Colorado Rockies. It's got like a little emblem on it. Do you know what this is about? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I asked my pitching coach. He's like, oh yeah, you got the pitcher of the month for the organization. He's like, you've been on fire. So that's your watch. It's like, awesome. Thanks. My dad still wears it. It says, but I had no idea because I was there to support, contribute, and win ball games with my team. Process. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's a really, as you said, that for you, it sounds like that process side is really important and what probably allows you to disassociate sometimes from negative or positive performances is actually I'm just going to focus on that process, which is really, uh, really interesting. Yeah. Um, fast forward in a little bit. Obviously, you mentioned earlier, and we had discussions previously um, around that. Ultimately, unfortunately, your your uh, time as an athlete was kind of cut short due to, you know, shoulder problems and stuff. So, do you just want to talk through? I guess how many seasons you're actually able to achieve and what that looked like, and then kind of yeah, how the shoulder problems began to arise, and at what point you actually realised. This is, you know, I've got almost got to give up the ghost a little bit, and this is this is me done from from this perspective. Yeah, it's two years, short lived, right? Two two and a half years, 
maybe three of the tops. But after that season, I was riding high. I mean, I went, you know, we almost won the championship, came in that offseason, trained. I was feeling on top of the world. Uh, and then that spring training went back again, ready for a full season, still feeling great. And then from there, I realized, all right, now I'm going. Like, I'm on my track. We're, we're going. I'm going to low A ball, full season, North Carolina. Let's do this. In spring training, I'm being put in games with some of the other, you know, closers and guys from all the other leagues. And I'm feeling truly on top of the world. I feel great. And then I get to where I was at in Asheville, North Carolina, and started off on the same path I was at, right? Just doing great, trying not to think about the stats. I'll never forget the reporter coming in and telling me I haven't given up a run in like 28 innings. And then all the other people, baseball is very superstitious. Looking at the reporter, like, what are you doing? Like, what? don't say those things. <laughs> I had no idea. So I then had a great first month after that month. Again, I remember the day, remember the team. It was raining. I went out there, threw a pitch, felt funny, got through it. And then the next day, the next game, so two or three games after that, I gave up two runs, three runs, and another two runs. So like seven runs in three games, and I hadn't given up a run in like 25 innings. I just thought I was soft, or I thought that I had just get back and figure it out. But my roommate happened to be behind with that radar gun. It was like, Charlie, you're throwing 82 miles an hour, man. And I was like, thanks for telling me. No wonder. <laughs> I mean, I thought I was missing my spots. I just thought I was not performing. He's like, nah, man, something's going on. And at that point, you're like two or three months into the season. So you start to rehab. They send you back to Arizona and then back to Washington. That whole season was almost like the back half was a wash. of just trying to like get back healthy. And I never did. Then you report back that next season. So this is year three. And you get released. You get released knowing I was hurt. It was kind of a weird transition where I had to figure that out with the organization. Eventually got surgery. Rehab for two years. So now I go from 20 to 25 or 24. But two of those years were me rehabbing a shoulder. Came back 83 miles an hour and had to hang them up officially. I had to close my chapter, which I did, weirdly enough, at my junior college. I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, no, listen, I know this is something that we we spoke about previously, but I think it's a really nice probably anecdote for people to kind of show what goes on in the background with athletes, which people don't necessarily always see. Um, and obviously you've mentioned there around the, you know, two, two years of rehabbing kind of away from a team and doing what you love and uh, and whatnot. Could you just describe, I guess, that uh, the, the, the point at which you went, right, this is me done. What, what that story actually was. Cause I think it, yeah, it's quite theatrical if you like, in terms of yeah, in the end of a movie, I can see it being one of those types of situations, if you will. Yeah. What was that? Like the last part of the movie or like the book, right? The chapter of the book, or it could be just a book in itself, right? The professional baseball book. Someone had told me an old, an old teammate, find a way to close, close on your own terms. And I think that was the hardest thing for me is that I wasn't able to close this chapter on my own terms. And 
I went back to coaching in my junior college. I went back to coach to work with the guys while I was rehabbing, training, running, playing catch, so that I could then hopefully in a year and a half, two years from now, come back and call one of the coaches that I work with that said, hey, whenever you're ready, call me. I got you. Like We'll get you on the or We'll figure it out. Then after 24 months, you get out there and you're throwing inner squad, you're going and you're literally throwing to the guys that you're coaching. And that radar gun was saying 82, 83 miles an hour. And then it was saying 80, 81, 82. So I called my dad and another dear friend of mine out to come watch me. And I remember seeing my friend behind the gate, my dad sitting in the stands in my junior college. And I had an outing. I went out there. It's like, let's see where I'm at. It's been 24 months. Again, go back there. Talk to my guy. He's like 83 miles an hour, man. Thanked him. And then I felt the emotion hit me. I went over. My dad was in the stands. I gave him a hug. Right? Cried. Saw my buddy in the background. Right? I knew it. My dad knew it. And it was kind of a moment for me. I was like, okay, you closed it. Right? You closed this chapter. Had a conversation with that same coach that I mentioned earlier that from my junior college, he knew it already, but it wasn't his, you know, he knew it. And then that was the chapter. That was me closing it saying, okay, like you did what you could have done. 24 months. Sure. I could have went and played independent ball like in Iowa somewhere. But I always told myself, give yourself until you're 25 years old and then figure out what this next transition is for you. But I'm very fortunate that I was able to close that playing chapter in a way, in a way on my own terms. Yeah. And I think that that's, you know, and this is a, I actually did my dissertation on this as we discussed at university, mm -hmm. which was around the loss of identity. And I remember a friend of mine saying, I hate Saturdays because it's meant to be football day and I can't play because of injury. Um, and I'm sure that's something, you know, for, for you, that you, you probably relate to for a period where you're like, actually being injury, being injured and having that situation and not being able to do the thing that you wanted to do, could do, you actually needed a point to go, right, enough's enough. And like, you're no longer Charlie, the baseball player or Charlie, the rehab player or Charlie, the whatever. It's like now I'm Charlie what's going to be next for me um so could you just talk through i guess what what that next period looked like to get you to where you are now because i think you 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 spoke to me about some really interesting conversations about why sales might be appropriate and how you found that not maybe right for you and i think that it's just a really interesting journey that you went on to probably get to where you are now from that bit where you've gone right I've closed this chapter what does next look like yes what what does next look like was so foreign to me I had no idea and I was the first person in my family to go to college to graduate from university so it wasn't like there was these internships or these opportunities that were like lined up I didn't know what to do and as an athlete they tell you <laughs> you're highly competitive you get into sales go work for a medical device company or go work at enterprise rent a car. You're in sales. You should be in sales. You're an athlete. So I lived in San Francisco Bay area where I'm surrounded by all these technology companies. You get into sales, but it took about six months of knocking on doors. I've given my resume and having people look at it and say, you've done literally no work. Like, are, what do you, what do you mean you want a job here? So then, then finally somebody gave me a shot because they're like, Oh, you were a professional athlete. We can teach you some skills. 
you're going to make no money right now, but if you show that you can do some of this, we'll keep you grateful for them. Got into sales, working at a startup, learning the lingo, eventually landed a job at a big corporate, you know, sales organization. Wasn't, wasn't a fit for me, but it was me figuring out over this course of five to six years of what being in sales looked like as an athlete. And there was just something that wasn't quite doing it for me. And I didn't know where to go from there. So I had to tap into a network that I didn't know was a network <laughs> and start asking people, like, what do you do for a living? Because I just went from living a child, a dream to like floundering around for five or six years, not being fulfilled with any of the work that I'm doing. And that was the start of my process. But it took six years. And I think one of the things you mentioned previously was about understanding what you enjoyed about sport. So, you you, you know, you mentioned one of the things they say for athletes going to sales because it's competitive. You know, there's a goal you're trying to win or you're trying to sell and stuff. But actually what resonated for you wasn't that. So could you just talk through, I guess, what did resonate for you and what the self-awareness piece looked like in terms of actually I enjoy playing baseball because of X, Y, Z. So my career that I'm going to look for now probably needs to mirror that in some capacity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So what was the what was the part about the game that I did enjoy about sales and did not enjoy about sales? But what about the game influenced that? And it was the relationships. It was the conversations. It was the coaching, the real time impact. Right? Having dialogue, having it be competitive. But think about it. I'm selling software that might get used or might not get used six months, a year from now. That was a long, long time to see some some sort of impact. What I enjoyed about the sales acumen, the, the part of it was developing relationships. What did I love about the game? I love being in the bullpen with my guys, talking, building relationships with them, learning about what drives them, what they care about. I love the strategy of the game, right? Thinking long-term. There was also this ownership part of the game that I loved. That for me, as a closer, I have to be the most convicted, authentic person out there on the field because there's nobody coming out at the end of the game to get me. Where else can I have this sense of ownership and real-time immediate impact? Like right now, it's the end of the game. <laughs> the game's on the line. I love that part about the game. I love the ownership. I love the relationships. I love the strategy. I love that it was an individual concept. I got to worry about me that fit into this team concept. So I started to explore what type of career can I have all of that in a way that does align. And I think the biggest part was the immediate impact. And I wasn't getting that as much with sales as I wanted to. So I had to find a way to figure that out. Yeah. So where's that got you to now? So obviously you've been on that journey of self-reflection, self-awareness. So in terms of where you are as a, as an individual, what you're practicing and you know, how you're working, what does that look like for you at the moment? Now, through that process, I realized I liked the one-on-one -on -one aspect, coaching, working, having conversations with people that I can help them with something that was immediate, like literally right in front of them, and then seeing them apply it. So after doing my own kind of, not even a sabbatical, a six-month, like, what am I going to do? I was introduced to somebody via a previous 
colleague at one of these technology organizations who was a professional golfer, who was now at a communications firm, was like, hey, I think that you would like what we do here. They do a lot of one-on-one coaching and they do a lot of group training for all these companies across Silicon Valley. I had no idea what they what they did. <laughs> when you walk in, and they're like, hey, we're a communications firm. We do a, a myriad of things. We're going to put you in front of the room. You're going to learn some of the content and you're going to go work with leaders and managers and you're going to teach them some of our content. Man, fell in love with it immediately, immediately. It was the closest that I can get to some sort of game day feeling of immediate impact, not knowing what I was going to get and having to kind of dance and adapt to the humans and the relationships in the room on a whim. Had to. So you learn, you kind of get beat up again from a communication lens. They kind of reframe and name a lot of stuff that you thought you knew to be true. So it was almost like I was back on the field practicing in my junior college just to prepare me for what was next, which is now. After doing that for four years, I loved it. Still have a great relationship with them. I'm a contractor for them now. A year ago, I launched my own performance and executive coaching business that works with high-performing leaders and teams after they've transitioned or in transition to where now they are in a leadership position. And I help them sustain that performance because they know what it is. They know what they need to do. So it's the mental frameworks, the discipline, a lot of the communication techniques and, and frameworks. We work on up-leveling that so where whatever organization they're in or industry, whether it's technology or sport, we're sustaining that high performance. So that's part of what I get to do now. Kind of get best of both worlds, sport and business. No, I think that makes complete sense. And I think it's a nice thread in terms of, you know, your experiences that got you to that place. I guess off the back of that a question for me is, in your experience from what you've seen or discussions that you've had, what are the kind of the key threads of high performance in teams? What does what the the best teams or the most high performing teams have in common? Um, and are there any common factors for low performing teams as well, just as potential red flags for anyone that's listening? Yeah, so what are the kind of tenets of high performance teams as an individual or team? Start with team. It's awareness. Honestly, it's the same for individual. High performing teams are aware of where they are. And they can acknowledge, right? There's this, this humility, like I know where we're at. I know what we need to be able to do individually and as a team. So how do we get there? Process. We've talked a little bit about process. What are the processes we need so that we can be one step ahead of each other so that I know what I'm doing, but I also know what you're doing. And if I know what I'm doing, I know what you're doing. I can be one step ahead of you and get you everything that you need. High performing teams live there. They are one step ahead of you. They're aware, they're disciplined, they can adapt. And they like to play in the gray space, which is what I would typically like to reference. The gray space is where, where the fun happens, where real dialogue happens. It's no win, no loss, black, white. The gray space is where we ask questions and we work together as a high-performing team where we're pushing, challenging. We're asking what are our non-negotiables? Where are their flexibility? What are we not saying? We're embracing that as a team. And so when you're looking at from, a, I guess, a challenge perspective, how do you go around making sure that's healthy challenge? 
because obviously what you don't want, you, you want your disruptors in there to go, are we doing the right thing? Are we going along the right lines? But what you don't want is someone being deliberately facetious or someone being overboard challenging, which is either reducing efficiency or refuse, uh, reducing productivity or upsetting others within the team, which you you know you, at the time you get with those diva players, if we're looking at it from a sporting perspective. The Mavs, for example, are, I think a good example at the moment. It doesn't seem that all's gone well with the Mavs at the moment. Um but we, we won't go into that. But yeah, how do you go around making sure that they're in that good space of healthy challenge to um, ensure we're, you know, we're aligned with our vision of where we want to be? Trust. The number one umbrella, the one that's on top of everything, it's trust in the relationship piece, which is where I typically lean in. How can we make sure that we have that trust, which, dies, which circles back to what we talked about in the beginning with my junior college coaches. I trusted that they had my best interest. I, I really did. And if we as a high-performing team can build trust and know how people operate and I know that you have my back and my best interest, that's where it starts. So a lot of the work that we do starts with trust. And then from there, it's building out frameworks, processes, getting to know each other as an individual and a human, not just a high performer, a human, so that we're building constantly and we're being strategic in how we're operating. But it has to start with trust. So, and mean, on that, on that tra yeah. trust piece, I'd imagine that must be a long-term thing, right? Because you can't manufacture that over an afternoon where you go, right, we're going to do these exercises and now you're going to trust everyone that you're working with. What kind of frameworks or tenants do you put in place to say, right, you know, as a group, this we're all in the room now. I'm in again in six months' time. These are the non-negotiables that we're agreeing to as a group that we're going to stick to. How does or what does that process look like? So people begin to develop that trust of, you know, alignment of ideas or alignment of goals or, you know, just generally feeling like this person's got my back. How, how does that process kind of work? It takes a little bit of time. Trust always takes, but trust can take a lot of bit of time. Um, let me say that better. There is a time component to trust. So part of it is diving into the human level. Now more than ever, if I have an idea, I'm new, I'm tenured, I don't know what I'm doing. There are these different components of trust, whether it's being reliable, whether it's being credible, whether it's showing up as my full self and being authentic. Everyone has what they deem as the most trustworthy qualities of an individual. I like to encourage people to talk about that. What matters to you? Right? What matters to Michael might be, hey, show up on time. What matters to another individual would be, is this person being authentic or do I feel like they're a different person when they talk to this person? I love facilitating dialogue so that everyone on the team can share what they define as trust. Because then I can start to understand, oh, Charlie doesn't like when someone doesn't show up on time. Trust is going to drop for him there. Or, hey, this person really values when someone does their research and comes prepared for a call. So now we start to understand what trustworthiness means. As at the individual level, then we start to map out what are some actions and behaviors that we can tie to the team so that we are clicking on all cylinders when we're out there on the basketball court, on the soccer field, or on the baseball field. And I know what makes that person move. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting because, like, it's really easy to stand up at the start of a season, particularly in the sporting thing, go, oh, here are our non-negotiables and go, oh, conscientiousness. That's going to be on there. If you're, if you're here one minute early, you're five minutes late or whatever the thing is. But actually, if you frame it at, like, at least, at least in my head, no, you're abusing this person's trust by mm. being late for stuff. So when you're saying to them, when they're saying they don't trust you, it's be directly linked to because you're not being conscientious. They think that that's, you know, you're wasting other people's time and actually that's a major red flag for them. Yeah, to a behavior, right? Like it's a behavior. It's like, oh, now we think about it differently. Now you're like, actually it matters. So where I just go, well, what does it matter? I'm a couple of minutes late. What does it matter? I was just grabbing a coffee or I had someone else to talk to. It's like, well, no, there's actually an almost an a, a extrinsic value to this now, which is if you are late, you are going to cause fractions with some members of this group because they hold that as one of their key building blocks for trust. So I think that's exactly. a really nice way of actually, if you can get a definition from everyone, what trust looks like, and then begin to link that and align that to group goals, it then hopefully allows you to build the trust longer term because people are manifesting things that build trust of people in the room. Absolutely. It's alignment, but it's also like a common understanding. So I think it's naming, it's naming the behaviors and the actions. I'm big on action. I'm big on doing the things that you say you're going to do. And if we define it as an individual and then as a team, what trust means for us, it's going to be different. For your team, for this team, what we what we see is the most important pieces of trust. It's a it's a buzzword for a reason. Well, let's define that buzzword. Let's let's make it real for us. Just like a team will have a mantra or a mission. Let's bring that to life so that we all collectively as a team, as a culture, yeah, this is what we believe in. We're dogs. We're the under, we're the, we're the we are the top dog, whatever it is. <laughs> What is our mantra? We are hard work. Let's start with a common language. Trust is the number one important language that you need to start with. No, I think that's a that that would be a key takeaway from me actually in this from this conversation. Wonderful. Well, one one of them, but is actually can you define those things? If you define them in the group, you begin to see whether the alignment is or where the disparity is, and then you can start to talk through those bits because that you know the disparity is where maybe you talked about the gray area area earlier but that gray area may align and you might not want it on that on the trust bit we may want that to be really black and white so that yeah. we can then we've got these building blocks to allow us to go into gray further down the down the pathway yes and from a leadership perspective too think about it as a leader then there's no choice there's always a choice even though there's never a choice <laughs> that makes sense so if i know that you think that you define trust this way and I might define it another way. And I'm the leader of the team. And it's part of my responsibility to lead and motivate a team. And I know that this is important to you from a trust perspective. I, as a leader, can make a choice as to whether or not I adapt and I adjust to motivate and to build trust with you. But if the ultimate goal of me being a leader is to build trust around the entire team, there is no choice. I better do that. There is no choice. If I know what trust means for my team, 
the only choice you got is to be able to adapt to your team and motivate how you need to based on what the team has told you, has literally told you. Yeah. <laughs> We're not playing the guessing game, right? And one, one thing you mentioned previously when we spoke was around people having that core five. Yeah. Um, I think from leadership positions in particular, this is a really interesting concept, particularly if you begin to look for it externally. Um, and I've had conversations um, and listened to speeches from people, you know, high up in, in different sports, like national government bodies over here. And one of the things that they, they uh, mentioned was really interesting was they didn't get something from their current boss and their current organization. So they actually sought it elsewhere and they got one of their core five people kind of from an external source, which I thought was actually really forward thinking. From your perspective, could you just explain kind of the, the core, I guess, core five principle and why that's important for people to allow them to to flourish in these types of roles yeah the the, the core five the starting five as i like to call it extremely important as a leader who's going to push you who's going to challenge you or give you some different perspective i like to have five people that i can go to that i know are going to continuously kind of up level me in the areas that i think are most important for me if I know that I'm very fast and I'm moving and I need to slow down, I better have somebody as part of my starting five that's going to be able to keep me neutral and remind me to be patient. If I am someone who is maybe more reserved and maybe don't have as much of a belief system and think I can achieve X, X Y, and Z, one of the people that I'm going to probably go to that I'm going to make sure I'm building a relationship intentionally with is that person who's going to tell me, you can think bigger and how are you going to do it? And they're going to push you. I'm also going to have somebody that might challenge me, call me in my blind spots because I know that, again, I trust them because they have my back. They have my best interest. All of this, all of these people are going to then shape. And then again, you as a leader have a choice to take and apply what you learn from them. Diversity of thought is one of the best things that we can have as a leader. But I would ask you out there, if anyone is listening, like, do you actually give yourself an opportunity to go get diversity of thought? Or are you in the same circles? And if people do? and are people comfortable with challenging you and all stuff if they oh. don't think you're correct, like it's easy to have people that just go yes because you you're in charge of them, or no because you're going to your boss and he constantly is just going to say no to stuff. Do you actually have people that are going to say to you no, like pursue this idea? I think is a good one, or actually you're letting your your employees down by the way that you're acting at the moment and you know they've got no skin in the game to tell you that but they're just doing it because actually they want you to be better yes so important to be able to isolate your ego isolate the ego what part of this is talking to me like can i understand where this is coming from of why i don't want to change or why i don't want the feedback once i can do that then i open up my my starting five and i'm just an open book let me learn let me grow here the best coaches are coachable. The best teachers are teachable. Perfect. I think on that quote, unconscious of time, let's go to my last question, which is something I ask everyone. If I were to speak to the people that you work with um, or you, you see daily, how would you want them to describe you in three words and why? Of service. Authentic, 
inclusive. Think of service, truly. Um, previous CEO uh, would always say, to be of service is the highest form of humanity. And I love that because we all, regardless of what we're going through, can always be of service to somebody else. And I've always felt that. I think for my family, right, which is kind of rooted in probably my grandparents in a way, my parents, to always be of service. Authentic. Why wouldn't we be? It's the best gift we have is to be ourselves. And once once I unlocked that for myself, I think it was the most important transitional period for me. It's no one, no one better to be than yourself. And I hope other people can do that and feel that when they are with me, that they can be themselves. That's the most important part. And then inclusive. I mentioned diversity of thought, of people, of human. I live in the Bay Area, probably one of the most eclectic cities and areas that you can be at in the world. And the perspective and life lessons and experiences that everyone else has to share I'm here for it all. It makes us better humans. And at the root of all of this, it's how can we be, how can we be more human <laughs> and connect with people on a human level? We got to be inclusive and open ourselves up for it. Perfect. Listen, Charlie, I think a, a brilliant conversation in terms of your journey to where you are now. I think, um, hopefully loads of stuff that will resonate with people from an athlete perspective to a process perspective to a management and leadership perspective, loads to take away for people that maybe want to um, see your work or see what you're doing. Where, where can they find you? Uh, what can that look like? Uh, yeah. yeah. Where, where can they get hold of you? Yeah. Three areas mainly, of course, you could go to my Instagram. Uh, that, that's the one that I'm probably posting more active on from a social media sphere. And um, that's Charles L. Ruiz. And then LinkedIn as well. Right? You could find my name, Charles Ruiz. And then my my website, some of the work that I do is CLR Connection. So clrconnection.com is where I'm helping in connecting leaders to, to their mind, to our, their authentic voice, and then to intentional actions, right? Helping them do what they say they're going to do while also staying accountable to who they actually are. Perfect. Listen, a great conversation. I know for a fact that we'll stay in touch, but yeah, appreciate your time and enjoy your uh, trip away because I know that in a couple of hours you're going up to the mountains. So yeah, enjoy your trip away and we'll catch up again soon. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.